Welcome, everyone, to a new episode of the Compositional Podcast. Um, I'm your host, Noon. I am a software engineer at Twig. Uh, I work on Haskell projects mostly. I have a particular interest in um, kind of interactive UIs. So I'm really excited to introduce our guest today, which is Isaac Shapira. So, Isaac, do you want to introduce yourself? Sure. So my name is Isaac Shapira. I come from a little company called Platonic Systems, and I'm the uh, primary author of the Shpadoinko library for user interface programming in Haskell. Yeah, welcome. Great um, great name. Thanks for pronouncing that library. I think, uh, <laughs> how, did, how, did, how did you come up with the name? So uh, Shpadoinko is a reference to a movie called uh, Cannibal the Musical, which was a Trey Parker student film. And uh, when he wrote the script, uh, he would put the word Spadoinkle into the script for, as a placeholder for where he needed to put a word. And in the end, they decided to leave the word Spadoinkle in the script, and it kind of became a joke. But the, uh, there's a song in the movie called Spadoinkle Day, and the chorus of the song is, I think I know precisely what I mean when I say it's a Spadoinkle Day. And for the longest time, I had this notion of how user interfaces ought to be programmed, but uh, it wasn't precise. I thought it was precise, but it wasn't expressible. So I thought I knew precisely what I meant, and I didn't have a good name for it. So having a, a word that means placeholder, that we know precisely what we mean, uh, seemed fitting. Oh, wow, that's a very, that's a very, very nice connection. <laughs> um, glad to hear hear it was so thoughtful. I have to say, when I looked up um, Spadoinkel on Google, I was dismayed that I think your website is at the bottom of page one. <laughs> have you seen that? Yeah, part, one of my goals here is to uh, get lots of mathematicians and engineers to say a silly word as much as possible. Um, additionally, it would be nice if Google searches for this word. Uh, produced a combination of Cannibal the Musical references and programming, which I would find to be amusing. Perfect. Great, great, great. Well, let's see how we how we go at achieving that goal. Um, so yeah, let's let's just dive in. So so why don't you just kind of describe uh, Spadoinkle a bit and kind of explain the motivations behind building it? Sure. So I started writing this and coming up with the idea about six years ago, uh, partially born out of frustration with Elm. I was kind of uh, a user interface engineer at the time. I was discovering functional programming. Um, I really fell in love with uh, the Elm architecture and uh, declarative UIs in general. But it also has some very irritating constraints and restrictions uh, upon it. Uh, additionally, it turns out that you know one of the central lessons functional programming is taught user interface in the mainstream is the value of a unidirectional data flow where we have some data at the top of a tree structure and we provide that data down into components. And uh, if we're gonna go back up, we go back to the top of the structure. So having this unidirectional data flow where something's coming in and then uh, something different is coming back out or the same thing is coming back out, just seems to be emergent. And it's not even that new of a thing. The idea that we want to bind some stateful object of data to our UI model is, is pretty old. You know, we had the whole DHTML thing. Um, the challenge seems to be keeping those things in sync. For a long time, that was a challenge that, you know, hadn't been overcome. Angular had like an interesting approach to that with the digest cycle to keep the data model and the UI uh, synchronized. 
And then there's a need to uh, respond to user events and behaviors, right? So if the user does something, we want to change the state or have some kind of a side effect. And it turns out that there's just a lot of complexity in that, but there also isn't. Um, all of the UI libraries that I had been using and exploring uh, had the same kind of underlying structure. There was something in them that uh, was unifying across all of them. And so I started with uh, Spadwinkle in an attempt to uh, expose that, to expose this underlying structure and to have something that was, you know, maybe more emergent and, and simpler as a way of going about uh, user interface development. Um, and part of my evidence for saying that it's emergent or simpler is actually that we can take the Spudwinkel programming model or programming paradigm, however you want to think about it, and represent it in you know a myriad of different systems. You can uh, have a Spudwinkel model with embedded within a reflex application, for example, without uh, making any changes. You can have this model embedded inside of an Elm application Actually, if you set your update function to always, uh, that will give you roughly a Spadoinkle. If you can have this inside of React, you can actually have this inside of Angular, you can have this inside of Concur. Um, it just turns out that there's this one central substructure that exists across all of these different programming models. And my evidence for saying that ultimately is that, hey, we can actually represent the same, uh, the same structure inside of these existing libraries without altering them. And so kind of the suggestion here is, what if that's all we used? What if instead of having, um, you know, what if uh, all of these additional ceremonies we have with hooks in React and giant update functions with Redux or Elm architecture, with uh, reactive uh, variables in, in, in Reflex, with uh, time reification and concur, uh, what if all of these additional things here that are more than the, the simplest possible core are actually unneeded. What if we uh, just kind of stuck with with uh, the the simple substructure and let users define more things on top of it instead of kind of providing this this uh, batteries included uh, framework? So that was that was my motivation for starting Spadoinkle and kind of what I'm trying to achieve. So you've kind of had a lot of experience with a few of these other libraries and you've started to see this pattern yes. and you've been like, oh, okay, well, what if I can abstract this out? And so exactly. just going back to something you said about uh, DHTML, did you, I, I, I feel like I have a memory of doing DHTML like many, many years ago. Is, is that with XML? You could make like a dynamic web page with XML. Is that what you're referring to or are you referring to something else? That's exactly right. Yeah. Um, the ability for us to say, you know, we're going to template something in or, uh, you know, there's the other the other aspect here, right, is if you're familiar with like the Elm architecture or Redux or something with a dispatch, um, the way that that works, you know, we have an event handler and that event handler uh, go, feeds back into the system. And then you have this big update function where we're going to modify our state and fire effects, this type of a thing, right? Uh, this is kind of uh, linking the update logic to the locality of where the event takes place in the UI by having this intermediate message type or payload type kind of a thing. Um, and with DHTML or with you know the way that HTML was designed, the way that this all kind of came about from browsers uh, originally was to do it in the event handler, right? So you would have an event handler inlined in the HTML itself. You know, you say on click 
and then JavaScript colon, and you're going to do something there, and the application can can update. But again, you lose the synchronization. So we've had little bits of this for a really long time, and it's actually fundamental to the way the web was designed. So that's the reason I bring up DHTML is part of the idea which Spinoinkle is to be harmonious with the way the web was designed in the first place. Yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah, because I think my experience with Elm has has certainly I've found a bit of friction in those big update um, st- statements, yes. especially when, especially like my feeling is like especially when I've kind of wanted to change something, when I've like introduced some new thing, and then I have to like let's say I've I've added a new uh, sub field to my model then i have to go and like muck around with right. all these update statements again so so you're saying like part of your dream is to kind of make that process a bit easier um i've eliminated it so in spidwinkle you can do your state update directly in the event handler uh the way that the browser designers had always intended so instead of having there be this bifurcation where you know one part of your application component um, so one part of your UI component defines the view as it corresponds to a, a given state and then defines ways in which we can link portions of that view to user actions in this big update function. Um, instead, it's actually all local. So, uh, for example, if we're going to you know, have a simple counter application, right, that just kind of increments a number, instead of having uh, a dispatch type or a message type, uh, to use Elm speak, where we're going to have some increment message, and that goes to an update function, and then that update function allows us to link the click handler through this increment message. This is all indirection, is what I'm suggesting. It's unnecessary indirection uh, to our actual logic, which is plus one. Instead, in a Spinoinkel application, in your view, you just write on click plus one, then that's it. Does it make it like a little bit harder to work out what any given application is going to do? Like, I guess one advantage of the big update thing is that you can kind of like, mm-hmm. you can kind of ignore literally everything about the view and you can just look at your update thing and go like, oh, okay, that's that's right. That's where I do this or that's where I do that. Like, I, it's hard for me to be totally biased and decide whether that's good or not. But yeah, what what's your feeling about that? No, it's it's completely fair. So in practice, it's turned out to be actually quite a bit nicer because it turns out that when you're debugging something, you're reasoning about a UI, uh, typically what you're doing as an engineer is you're looking at a particular user action, right? And so if I'm debugging an Elm application, the mental process I'm going through is I'm looking at the button that was clicked. I am looking at the view code for where that was clicked first. I never look at the update function first. I look at the view code for that first see what message is being sent. And then I have to look up the view code, the update function, find that message there through the giant pattern match, right? Figure out whether or not, you know, this pattern is getting uh, triggered or not, and then instrument that code. It makes uh, testability really difficult. And you can argue, you know, that you could make these all top level functions and test them, but that's not the pattern Elm encourages, right? Um, and part of the idea here is that we want to have a pattern that encourages good practices uh, from its very nature, right? When you see people write Redux code or Elm code, the update function is massive and everything's inline, right? If you're doing something in Spinoinkle and you have a small enough state update, you just don't need to have it tested. It doesn't need to be outside of anything. It's very local reasoning. You just have this simple function. It takes in an input. It provides an output of this HTML, and you can very clearly see it does plus one, right? 
uh, if you have more compl complex logic, typically what I see users do in the wild is they'll define that logic as a top-level function. It's just a pure function. And that's very easy to test, very easy to reason about. And it's typically co-located with the view function that uses it, right? And if there's view logic that, uses, that uh, reuses this, then it's very easy to trace that. So uh, the result of this is, a very, is it encourages kind of having things at the top level and having things be very testable if it's uh, going to contain any kind of substantial business logic. I think that co-location thing is kind of important. I think that's that's kind of annoyed me, I think, a little bit. Yes. You know, which is like maybe one day you want to delete something and then you have to jump all over your file. Just like, oh, like, did I, did I delete it from here? Did I delete it from there? So that's kind of um, kind of annoying. Exactly. And just to be clear, I love Elm. I think Elm is a great project. Uh, I just find it to be tedious, all of this uh, additional complexity that isn't actually, you know, part of the part of the core of what's needed, uh, where we have the messages and the giant update function, all of these pieces that have to work together. It means that if I'm having to uh, design a new component for my system, I need to update five things. And for each instance of that component, I need to update it in multiple places. Um, one of the advantages with uh, kind of turning that same model on its head is that components are now one piece. And because they're one piece, it means they can be embedded uh, in one place. Now, uh, one of the criticisms I've heard for Elm as well is that this uh, lack of compositionality that comes from having to brute force put all these uh, components together um, is somehow endemic to either declarative UIs, meaning you know the HTML is a data structure uh, in the actual code, or that it's endemic to having a single state record. And I would also like to suggest that that's not the case. You can have both of these things and retain compositionality. Uh, the way in which uh, Spinoinkle composes is with lens. So we have a little helper function on record, and so it becomes uh, one function call to compose one component onto a parent state model. And um, in practice, it's just not onerous. It turns out that that's actually really nice, and we get to retain a whole lot of benefits like single source of truth, uh, determinism based upon a single state, uh, time travel debugging, all of these kinds of things come along for free uh, when you have that single source of truth and, uh, and a declarative UI. So the idea that you know this doesn't compose or this doesn't scale, it just doesn't hold up if you've, if you've kind of taken this different angle. Yeah, that's nice. Yeah, I think going back to what you said about Elm, I don't, I'm, I'd be interested in your opinion. It feels like there's not many projects that have had such a huge impact in the UI landscape. Like Elm has had such a massive, massive impact. Oh my God, yeah. No, Evan did a great job. Uh, you don't see design quality like that without it having a big impact. And it's also one of these things that can be kind of frustrating because mainstream UI has really embraced FP to as far a degree as they can, right? You know, it's going to be TypeScript. Uh, these people are not Haskellers for the most part, but they're embracing it as far as they can in that space. And there's a lot of good lessons learned there. And uh, it hasn't, uh, for whatever reason, the functional programming community in Haskell kind of hasn't uh, adopted a lot of those lessons in the way UIs are done. Um, for example, you know, we have things like Reflex or these uh, uh, higher order functional reactive libraries, which completely reject essentially all the lessons that have been learned in the mainstream and go, no, we're going to have things compose by putting things into a giant effect monad, right? Just because we can have this giant effect monad, then we can put whatever inside of it 
and things will compose that way. But you've lost all purity, you've lost single source of truth, um, you've lost the ability to reason about your code in this kind of very simple way uh, by making things monadic where it's not natural to be so. And ironically, mainstream UI has learned this lesson and Haskellers haven't. I see. So would you um, put Meso in that kind of category as well? So Miso is uh, Elm architecture, exactly. I believe it's Elm 16 architecture, so it's not the current Elm architecture. Current Elm architecture, I would describe as, um, you know, functorial FRP, where we have uh, one fold abstractly there with the one update, and then uh, messages coming in are merely functors, right? They're deliberately not applicative. They're, they're definitely not monadic, right? Um, the state of MISO is from Elm 16, where we still have FRP constructs like signals, which are in fact applicative. I see. Yeah, that's interesting. I put, I put something online with MISO just the other day. Just I hadn't used MISO for a long time, and I was just trying to work out, like, does GHC, JS compile and still work? And there was a Nix, there was like a Nix shell for it, and it worked perfectly. I was so, I was so excited. It was so, it was such a fun experience. Yeah, Miso's excellent, and um, uh, the the author is also quite a nice fellow. Yeah, I'll say. Cool. So, kind of, how have you approached the the development of Shipdonkle? Have you kind of been looking to other libraries for inspiration, or or maybe kind of more generally, like where do you think the future of like UI research and and cutting edge functionality is is coming from? It's a bit of a broad question. It, it is a bit of a broad question. So I guess I'll start with the first part there about how, the approach to writing it. Um, I just started doing it on my own time out of frustration initially. Uh, the idea is to keep things very, very modular. So for example, some people really don't like an HTML DSL. They really want uh, to use strings, for example. So that's a module, it's optional. Uh, some people would rather use uh, closer to the closer to raw event handlers. So. Event handler DSL is also optional. Um, uh, there's also some other people working on the project. Um, I think most notably uh, Morgan Thomas has been uh, a really important contributor. Uh, he was the one who found that uh, I had neglected to have a proper construct for dealing with concurrency. So that's a, a major difference there is that, you know, like Elm kind of doesn't let you do concurrency. So if you want to have things that are concurrent, it's by brute force which is, uh, t seems to be the Elm design approach, is just have the developer do this by brute force, right? And then you have other systems where concurrency is uh, higher order, you know, like the, the FRP libraries. And for a long time in Spidoinkle, it was just STM. So probably the idea is we, is we can just use standard, normal concurrency constructs to have concurrency in our UI. Uh, Morgan did a much better job and added continuations. And so there's this underlying concurrency model of continuations uh, to help the engineer be able to do things like send off a request and update a progress bar while that request is out and when have that request come back, right? If you can think about how uh, complicated that is to do in an FRP system, you know, you're doing uh, switch dying and, and, and sort of complicated causality things that depend on lazy eval. You can think about how difficult that is to do in a system like... Um, you know why is that complicated in Elm? Maybe you could just ex explain that briefly. Yeah, yeah. If you're doing that in Elm, uh, because of uh, Elm doesn't provide any abstractions for concurrency whatsoever, 
it means that your update function becomes complex and the logic becomes difficult to trace, right? So if let's say that same pattern. So the user clicked something, right? Uh, in Elm, that's going to hit the update function, and that update function has to then describe the XHR request and setting the state for this to in progress, right? And then that XHR request coming back also sends a message, which then hits the update function in a different location in its pattern match, right? Uh, that progress was received from, uh, from the server somehow. And then that needs to update progress. And then the request was completed, which sends another message, which is a different part of the pattern match, right? Where that comes through. And this can all be complicated, especially if the user clicked two things that perform a similar task. Uh, that's very interesting. Right? Yeah. So uh, not only is this complex, but you're going to have to copy-paste. It's, it's, uh, it's not a single function. You're having to jump around the update function and reason about it in this recursive fashion to, uh, to proceed. Um, in Shpidoikl, you can do this with uh, an applicative. Right? If you want to send off, for example, multiple XHR requests in parallel, you can use concurrently from the async library and use its applicative instance and those will go off in parallel. Uh, you can, you know, just in, uh, in a monadic code block say we're going to make this XHR request. Now we're going to set the state to in progress. As things come back, we're going to update the progress bar. And when it's done, here's our final update. And all of that is kind of one piece, right? That exists as a, uh, just a simple IO monad style piece of code and then gets referenced in one place in the on-click handler. And so uh, coordinating different parts of concurrency within the UI is a lot more straightforward. And um, there's no kind of causality loop potential problems. You're not dealing with having to mun streams together. The code is really declarative monadic code to the actual task you're performing. That does sound nice. Um, and I'm not, yeah. I'm not aware if there's another system that does that. No, I think, right yeah, now. it's not quite the same, but it reminds me of one of the most frustrating things I have, I've had to do in my Elm projects is generate a random number. Yes. <laughs> and then the amount of, like, the fact that I need, like, lots of messages to pull that off is so frustrating. It's like, ah, oh, just please let me have a number. I just want to do something. So I guess that kind of thing would also be a bit more yeah. self-contained and nicer. Yeah, that's that's quite nice. So, for example, you know, let, let's take that example, right? If you want to generate a random number in a Spiroinkle application, uh, one thing you could do is provide a standard gen, right, on your uh, on your model, right, and then your click handler can be pure. It can take that that standard gen, uh, generate a random number, produce a new standard gen, and just assign those values back onto its, uh, its local model. And so that would be it. There would be no additional messages, nothing there. It's just a pure function and a lens, and, and you're done. Yeah, that's nice. Um, yeah, so going back to maybe the other part of my question to re-ask it is kind of like, where do you feel like you're getting your inspiration from for, for how like the, the roadmap that you're taking Spadoinkle on? So before this point, there was a lot of inspiration taken from other libraries and just my experience as a UI developer and as a UX developer. Um, there's kind of two directions where I think Spinoinkle needs to mature and is on the roadmap ahead. Um, one is there's definitely a desire to have kind of Flutter style baked components, to have uh, a library that is just works out of the box as a complete suite of widgets, right? So how to represent that in a really nice and elegant way is something I'm doing in the Shapiroinkle widgets library and I'm taking a lot of inspiration from things like Flutter, 
um, as well as things like uh, the React bindings for Material. Um, I'd like to have something that's really, you know, uh, put together there so that if you, what you what you're trying to do is just blast out a CRUD application as fast as you possibly can, you aren't spending any of your time writing any components or even uh, really any CSS. It just just kind of works. So that's one thing that's on the roadmap here. Um, another one is the debugger. Uh, debugger progress is happening. Uh, there's definitely inspiration being taken there, both from uh, React to, uh, developer tools as a Chrome extension. Uh, specifically, the the Redux Redux tooling there is really nice, um, as well as uh, Elm's time travel debugger. Just because both of those feature uh, debugging methodologies that are about reasoning, it's actually about reasoning about the code instead of just what is the code doing. As in, we want to reason through our state machine, and so I'm taking inspiration from there. I'm also seeing um, X state. Uh, in JavaScript, uh, is having a lot of traction, and is actually a really interesting library. What's that? What's what's XState? It is a library for declaring state machines, and so you basically provided a specification of a state machine, and it produces kind of an OOE object by which you can call methods, and that state machine uh, is is reliable based upon the specification provided, and. Um, I like those types of tools because they're about helping the developer reason about their code uh, in terms of logic instead of trying to reason about their code in terms of the machine. Yeah, there's a really nice website, I think. It might be called sketch.systems. Have you seen that website? No. What, what is it? It's one of the, It's like a REPL, but for defining state machines and then running them. I think it's got like four windows. On one is like you can define your state transition functions. In another window, you've got like a little bit of JavaScript where you can kind of like color your state changes. Like when I say stop, make the stoplight red. Um, there's another window to like display a picture and I forget what the fourth window does. But like, I th I think I love those okay. state machine things. I think they're probably in vogue right now. Yeah, please, please send me a, a link. Uh, I would definitely use this as, as prior art for the debugger. Um, and then the kind of the third thing, and I think that there isn't much to draw on here inspiration-wise, but I feel like it's a really important area of active research, is uh, concurrency in the context of UIs. Uh, it's fundamentally different. Concurrency in UI is just different from the w what things we need to do with concurrency on a server or on a backend. And um, I think that uh, we've missed out. We've kind of we've kind of missed how important this is to UI development to a large degree. You know, JavaScript has promises. There's a few abstractions out there, but for the most part, there hasn't really been a good system that helps the engineer reason about concurrent updates that are taking place in a UI context, where different things are in flight at different times. And so um, I'm really excited about the research Morgan is doing on that right now. He's got a, a really interesting merge request up there that allows for forking. Um, that's pretty exciting to me. Yeah, so maybe we could dive into that a little bit more. Kind of what, like, what's this? I, I mean, maybe I should know, but for for other people as well that probably don't know, what's the kind of concurrent concurrency story in the JavaScript world at the moment? Is it good? No, I'm, I'm saying it's largely absent. Uh, the concurrency story in the JavaScript world right now uh, seems to mostly be. Uh, there's a promise, or you're doing something FRP-like with RxJS, uh, where you're reasoning about concurrency in terms of streams that you're munging together. Um, neither of these, at least to me, seem to fit 
naturally with the cognitive process that the engineer is engaged with, right? The cognitive process that the engineer is engaged with is going to be something along the lines of, I need to hit these three API endpoints to gather the data that I need in order to provide this update. And I would like those to happen in parallel. And also when this particular API endpoint gets hit, I need to make a different state update, right? There, there's kind of a, a thought process that you go through reasoning about what your, what your UI needs to do. And I don't think that promises uh, fully serve that. And I think that reasoning about things in terms of stream munging is um, largely indirection, right? I, we're not thinking about these streams. They're discrete events. They're, they're simply not continuous uh, by their very nature. And so having these you know, uh, stream processing uh, style concurrency primitives are uh, dissonant, at least in my opinion. Oh, that's interesting. I think I think I know people who would get upset <laughs> at the idea that <laughs> that uh, stream processing isn't continuous or something. No, no, no. It is continuous. But if I'm making an XHR request to go get some data, that's a one-time event. D totally true. It's a discrete event. That's my point. Right, right. It, to to model a one-time event uh, with a tool that is designed for continuous stream processing. Um, is not semantic. That's what I mean. It's, I think that that's dissonant. Right. Um, it should be reasoned about as a one-time event. It should, it should be semantically as close to the developer's state of mind as possible. I think one, one of the reasons I got excited about this um, project, the, this Hasura's kind of GraphQL interface was because they had these subscribe functions. I think way back in the day when I first yes. heard about Hasura, I was like, GraphQL, I think it took me a long time to understand what GraphQL even was or care. But once I did, then I found out about subscribe and I was like, this is amazing. Like, why haven't I been able to do this? I, I mean, I've never used it, but <laughs> I'm sure it's exciting. No, absolutely. No, absolutely. GraphQL kind of has um, uh, some some relationship here, right? In that it's it's helping you aggregate things together. Uh, but you know, as a person who hasn't used GraphQL uh, before, uh, my understanding is that that's something that occurs outside of the UI, right? That the UI is providing this GraphQL request, and then uh, it's receiving an aggregate, right? As where what I'm talking about is something that's fundamentally inside the UI, totally, right? That the developer may need to do some of these things, as well as you know, we can't count on that the back end has a GraphQL. Totally. Right? If we're going to be a UI library, we need to support standard low-level abstractions first uh, and definitely not assume that, you know, we have access to anything specific. Yeah. So, so, so you're kind of quite excited about this continuation-style concurrency that is, is coming or it's, it's, it's there already? Um, it's there now. I'm excited about the research that's being done. Uh, I don't, th this has so far been the friendliest and kind of, it's stood up in a way that maybe I didn't expect right away, right? It's, uh, it's shown itself that it can really handle a lot of complexity with uh, very few primitives, you know? So the research being done there, it's going to allow for it to handle even more complexity and the amount of work that needs to be done to that file itself to support entirely new use cases is typically like a couple lines of code change. And so that to me sounds like a really sturdy abstraction. And it's also one that's opt-in. Most of the time when you're writing code in Spadoinkle, you're not dealing with concurrency, you're dealing with pure state updates because that's just the nature of UI, right? Um, and so you're not touching it at all. It's not there, you don't have to think about it. 
But when you do need to do something a little bit more complex and concurrent, uh, you have this uh, really flexible and powerful abstraction under the hood that will allow you to get those things done. And if you ever find something that it isn't letting you do, uh, and that's happened a couple times so far, typically it's like a one-line code change or just a few lines to add to that file, and all of a sudden it supports it and everything works. So it's continuing to develop and mature as it supports more and more uh, use cases, and I'm definitely excited about the research going on there. And then definitely a big shout-out to Morgan for, for putting the work in there. Yeah, that's nice. So, yeah, speak. maybe we can speak a little bit about the kind of community you're building around it. How, how have you approached that? Like, how have you found collaborators? Um, you know, uh, the cl- some of the collaborators I've had have been people I knew in my personal life who were friends who were interested in the project. Um, people have come in through channels like Twitter uh, and have helped out. Um, I set up a Zulip for it. Originally, we had a Slack, but I moved over to, to Zulip. And there's just kind of this slow trickle of human beings showing up there and making uh, suggestions and uh, making changes and contributing things. If you do a, a gorse, I don't know if you if you do that of the the project, you'll see for a long time me just blasting things out, and then people start coming in. And um, for the most part, I feel like my job with uh, the contributors is just to make sure that complexity stays low, because there's a lot of hard problems here that can be solved by doing things like adding more uh, type level variables or uh, more structures, like for one person suggested a component record structure that would add all of this functionality and features and things, but um, it turned out we could do the same thing without making any changes uh, or by making fewer changes. And so I feel like that's, that's kind of my approach with the collaborators is everyone has really good ideas and I'm always impressed with the ideas that get brought to the table. Um, a lot of times it's just, uh, I feel like my role is to be the curmudgeon and to, to say no and to try to get people to, to work harder to do it in a simpler way. Um, I just don't want to kind of violate that underlying philosophy of being in the substructure as much as possible. Yeah. Do you, do you find that's easy to communicate? I, I often wonder how easy, like how easy is it to communicate the philosophy of a project and then kind of embody that so people don't get upset, you know, so they're just like, oh yeah, this is just the way it should be, <laughs> you know? You know, I don't know. I hope so. Um, I don't think it's easy to communicate. Uh, I, I, I hope that I'm doing it in a way that doesn't upset people. Um, I know that having a merge request rejected or, or critiqued uh, can be, but at the same time, I think that the people who are interested in working on this, um, for the most part, they're very quality focused. And so quality focused engineers tend to have a little bit of a thick skin uh, just because they want that. They want the feedback. They want it to be the best that it can be. And so um, pushing back a little bit is, uh, at least I hope it's welcomed. If it's not welcomed uh, by any specific individual, I apologize. And, um, you know, you haven't told me, so there's nothing I can yeah, do there. Well, <laughs> at least now they've heard an apology, if, you, if by chance you have up <laughs> Like, I, I, I just Indeed. wanted to actually, I was just, just thinking, I actually had a really kind of, I don't know the word for it, but like, it was a moment that made me feel really good when I first started contributing to one Haskell project um, the stack Haskell project and there was the one of the people that was in charge of it was this person Michael Sloan 
and I was just always really impressed when I, you know, when someone would write an issue and they'd be ranting about something like "stack is the worst," how could you ever build this? He would always respond so cheerfully and be like, "Thanks for your feedback. <laughs> like, I see what you're struggling with. I understand it's annoying. Like, how can I help?" <laughs> and I was like, "Wow, Michael Sloan, you're a great." person like how how are you always so cheerful and i i it really made an impression on me i i share this perception of uh of of mick sloan out there in the world oh that's that's great that's great to hear um i had another question so i'm just wondering maybe it's crazy and i don't know what i'm talking about but have you is uh a kind of one of these isomorphic frameworks like i noticed somewhere it could run as a server and a client is that does my question make sense yes yes um okay so uh yeah Spadwinkle runs with ghc or ghcjs and uh it has subtly different properties depending on what compiler you're using um so for because it it will run with both and it's backed by js addle that's how that works uh, you can do some nice things, like for example, having like a live type checker uh, and good tooling is not something GHCGS provides, but GHC does, right? If you want to use Haskell Language Server, it needs to build with GHC or it's not going to work, right? So uh, everything in Spadoinkle will build with either compiler. Uh, you can run uh, a live development server uh, using GHC ID and actually just telling it that the unit test suite is the entry point for the development server. Uh, there's an example of that in the getting started guide for the the snowman where you can you can build a snowman and if you build one for me I'll, I'll build one for you you know um, so if you if you uh, uh, build it that way then you can get you know interactivity but because it builds with GHC you could also potentially do something like that uh, in a production context right you could do something like use JS Addle's uh, WebKit JDK backend and have something along the lines of like an Electron app where it's just GHC and WebKit JDK and it runs as a desktop application where the UI and the backend are one code base. Um, something like that can be really nice as well because it means that you can do things like have a SQL query in your event handler. You can say on click and, and have a SQL query there. I know that's a little bit old school. I hope that doesn't doesn't give anyone you know, old PHP tremors, but it is actually really nice in a purely functional context and you don't lose anything with that. Well, but I, I believe, I don't know, uh, you probably know more than me, but I be- isn't someone trying to make SQL kind of <laughs> happen for the front end? Like, can't you do interactions with local storage via SQL or something? Am I making that up? You can, you can. But what if you want to persist something on the back end? The, I guess the nice thing here is that, again, we can get rid of a layer of indirection. Right, where typically if you have a client and a server, you have this indirection uh, between the click handler and the, the XHR request is itself indirection. So the click handler says, oh, I'm going to make this request, and the server is going to respond from that request with the answer. And then you have to have some server code that accepts that request and responds with the answer. If you're able to build it entirely with GHC with using something like uh, WebKit JDK, then that interac- indirection is gone. You can simply say, this is the specific thing I would like the server to do in the handler because there is no server-client distinction. I see, I see, I see. I kind of like that. I think for yeah. a long time my my kind of feeling has been if you ever want a desktop app, you should just build it in with web stuff anyway and just use Electron or whatever to yeah. render it because why have a terrible time using 
you know, operating system UI stuff, which is just <laughs> terrible. Exactly. Exactly. And with this, you could have, you know, a desktop application. You're not dealing with all the complexity of something like Electron. Electron is a rather complex project. It would just be a standard GHC project with a very simple UI library, and it would run in JDK, and that's it. So that's kind of a nice paradigm. That's pretty neat. Have you done, have you built many apps like that so far? Um, no, I haven't. Um, I've done some experimentation with it, though, and uh, it does seem to work well. I've also done things like uh, written an application and then served it with a JS out of warp, which is the same thing we use for uh, developer tooling, and I actually put that into production, which had a pretty mixed result. I don't recommend it, but uh, it did allow for a lot of convenience in getting it out the door quickly because there wasn't that client-server distinction. Yeah, okay. Out of interest, have you tried Asterius? Um, I, I've, I've attempted to try out Asterius. Um, I actually... Uh, spent some time on a video call recently with Terrajack um, talking about what is required to get Asterius to be usable with Spadoinkle. I would really like um, Spadoinkle to be uh, to be building with Asterius, actually. I, I would prefer that. Uh, but there's quite a bit of work there yet to be done on Asterius. Uh, it needs to have a Nix expression for its build. Uh, we need to make sure that all packages in the Nix package set with Haskell packages successfully build with Asterius. Uh, the garbage collector needs to be completed. Right now, the Asterius garbage collector is um, in a little bit of a, of a state. Um, and there was one other uh, obstacle I re I'm not recalling right now, but there were kind of three obstacles we identified. Uh, but because Spadoinkle doesn't do anything fancy, uh, we should be able to use Asterius well before it has you know, advanced runtime features like uh, you know, uh, weak references. Yeah, cool. Yeah, so so maybe like another question I have is what what have you found kind of interesting about building this this like is this the first time you've built a a kind of an ecosystem and you've tried to make this kind of thing happen and or have you have you done this kind of thing before? Um, it's all been Spadoinkle, but yeah, I've I've made multiple attempts. This is uh this version of the library is kind of the third version I've written uh, written through. The first version was in JavaScript. And the second version was in PureScript. And this is actually the first version to be in Haskell. And I definitely found it to be um, uh, more pleasant to reason through the, the problem set in Haskell. Though um, it would be really nice to have a PureScript version. You know, it would be nice to have a Scala.js version as well as a, a TypeScript version. And we should have those at some point here because the idea here is a programming model. It's a programming paradigm. It's not language specific. And like I said, it can already be represented inside of a whole bunch of different libraries. So if you're already using, you know, a library there, I'll put together an article at some point that shows you how to use this model without using the Spadoinkle library uh, itself, that you can just kind of take advantage of the idea. Um, but obviously, you know, I encourage you to, to try the project and, and uh, see, what's, see what's come of it. Yeah, I see. So you want to see adoption in two ways, like at least, at le at least the idea and then maybe the library as well, because why not? Yeah. That's That'd great. be nice. Yeah, and so I guess I was kind of wondering, like, if if you if you were looking for, like, are you looking for more people to help out and like join on join in on the project, and if so, in what capacity? Absolutely, there's a giant backlog of issues uh, that anyone can pick off at any time and help out with, and it would be appreciated. Uh, if you join the Zulip, uh, you know, feel free to to ping me if you want direction on what I th I personally think would be valuable to work on as a first thing. Um, I'm also definitely looking for help getting 
uh, PureScript version of the project together, as well as you know the JavaScript version. I just kind of would like to see the library uh, ported uh, to more systems so that it's kind of more clear the idea and that the implementation itself is is secondary. Um, there's actually a, an individual in the Zulip now um, whose real name I don't know. His his, his uh, screen name is the Madden, who's been working on a PureScript version of it already, and I'm uh, I'm pretty excited to see how that's turning out. Uh, it is already working and rendering things, and he's having some really good input on uh, wrapping third-party libraries and doing some more advanced features, and so that's really promising as well. Yeah, that sounds great. And maybe just as a as a kind of final question, is there any kind of um, like up and coming crazy web technology things that you're looking like that you're excited about? Is there is like what what's kind of exciting you about the at the the web at the moment? Um, you know the the WebAssembly I think is going to be a really big deal. I think that once WebAssembly has threads, uh, interfaces have the opportunity to get a lot faster and a lot higher performance without having to do do too much work. Um, I don't think there's really a new web technology that's that's exciting me at the moment other than that. Um, WebGL still holds a lot of promise. I'm interested to see what happens there. Um, but that's that's kind of really it. The thing that excites me more about the, the future of this is, you know, my interest is in uh, the ergonomics and, and UX of the interactions between human beings and computers. At this point, Spidoinkle is about making uh, a nice developer experience for the engineer to write a UI. And I feel like the next big thing I'm excited about, uh, that I'm the most excited about is the widgets. Uh, because once we have the widgets, then there's a way to translate user experience for the end user in an elegant way. And um, that's, I think, is going to be an exciting one. I, I'd like to see uh, things in the code that represent abstract UI principles that I haven't seen before. I'd, I'd, lo I'd love to be able to see something like the Gestalt principles actually represented in Haskell. Um, I've never seen that, and I think that could be really fun. What are the Gestalt principles? So the Gestalt principles are part of uh, human visual processing. Things like uh, similarity principle, these two elements on the screen look similar, so I infer that they're related. Uh, closure principle, where uh, these things are kind of in the same box or in the same area. Um, and so I believe that those are related. Um, in, you know, uh, UIs are fundamentally tree structures. So we have, you know, some kind of a, a, a container that has a meaning and then constituents of that container that have a meaning and potentially subcontainers that also have a meaning. Um, things like uh, a closure principle can also be done with in, you know, in Gestalt without having a line drawn around it. It can be kind of an implied line around it. Um, I forget the, the name for that one. There's, there's, there's quite a few. Uh, that are about the way we reason about things visually and how we put together these pieces in our mind. And um, it's what UI designers are doing, right? When you talk to a UX designer, talking to a good, a good UI designer, they're thinking about these things and going, okay, how do we express this uh, for the user in a way that's going to accelerate the user's thinking, right? And um, to date, we don't represent that in the code. Right, we have the UI designer who has this mental model over here, and then they put together the design that represents a concrete implementation of that mental model, and then we have an engineer come and take that design and represent it entirely in terms of the logic that drives that mental model 
in total absence of the mental model itself. So it would be nice to kind of have a bridge across that, that, that boundary where the mental model of the designer, hey, these things are related, is actually represented in the code. If we can encode the designer's mental model into the application, then uh, you know we, we should be able to realize some interesting benefits from that, or at least that's my theory. Yes, that's that's very interesting. You said lots of very interesting things. Let me let me argue with you about one thing, or, or give you some Please. food for thought. There's a <laughs> there's a classic um, a classic article by one of my favorite favorite authors, and the article is uh, the city is not a tree. Have you heard of this? Have you heard of this article? No, and enlighten me. It's, it's classic. It's it's something like the gist is kind of like. So it's kind of like arguing with you uh, about you said something is a tree and the kind of argument is like if something is a tree then if you just imagine a tree has um, one node at the up the top and it has two leaves so you've just got two nodes at the bottom and what that kind of says is the two things are always disconnected and I think the gist of the article is like it's possible sometimes to interpret them as being connected. And so the, the argument of the article is kind of like, you shouldn't always force yourself to think of the, the city as all these kind of totally independent things that can't have these cross connections. Of course, this argument comes from urban planning, but um, it's, a fun, it's a fun, weird philosophical article to read um, if, you're, if you're interested in that kind of thing. No, absolutely, you know, and... Um yeah, I guess that's just where, where my excitement is uh, for the future with this, is to see if we can build uh, bridges across that kind of abstract boundary. It would be nice to see a bridge actually all the way from things like the database to product thinking. You know, it would be nice to be able to have something maybe like a, a high-level DSL where you can describe product thinking and have everything else be kind of uh, derived from that and then be able to break that apart uh, to access the low level, right? Like uh, power, power isn't low level control and power isn't high level control. Power is the ability to move between the low level and high level controls and to be able to uh, describe something at the right level of power, right? That's really, that's really where power comes from in my opinion, right? That's how you get strength. And so right now, you know, uh, we, we give you low level control, we have high level control to the highest level that's common for a UI library, but it would be nice to um, extend even further up the tower and be able to have higher and higher uh, control levels, which is why something like um, uh, to compete with Flutter or Material is, is, is next on the list. Yeah, that sounds great. Well, yeah, thanks so much for joining us today, Isaac. It's been been really, really interesting. Um, we'll post some links on the website to where people can find out more. But is there is there anything else you wanted to just do a shout out for? Or? Um, no, I think I think this was a really good conversation. I appreciated being here, and and thank you so much for uh, giving me some of the airtime. Perfect. Thanks. Mm -hmm.